Welcome to the State of the Outdoors podcast, where we tell you what's going on at the national and state level in regards to policy and issues that are relevant to our hunting, fishing, trapping, boating, and outdoor heritage. Um, We endeavor in this podcast not to editorialize, just to give you the facts, and we do that to try to help our brothers and sisters out there who work a really long work week and just don't have the time to attend the meetings and stay up on the issues like we do and we do this as a service there won't be any um, advertising on this podcast ever and it is uh, straight editorial so or excuse me it is straight and it is not an editorial my partner in this podcast is none other than ben bishop the fourth district director for kentucky backcountry hunters and anglers how you doing ben uh pretty decent how about yourself Hanging tough, man. Staying, uh, staying so far, staying wide of any uh, any illnesses. So uh, with same hunt, here with hunting season coming up. I hope that's hope that God keeps blessing me to stay healthy. Same here. I hear that. But yeah, I haven't been up to a whole lot other than uh, you know bow season kicked off here. So I've been out a couple times with that. You know, trying to get the bows, get it get it in line still. Uh, and well, we just got back from. Cave Run Lake this past weekend had a great time out there. I wish I, I wish I could do that every weekend. That's awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, getting as many of as many members of our board of directors and executive committee together and uh, and uh, do we our annual meeting was supposed to be back in July and now that the governor's lifted some of those restrictions, we were able to have a very small meeting. We just barely had quorum. Yeah. Um, but we did, so we got our annual meeting done, and we and we did a camp out with it. So that was that was badass. Some good eats, some oh my god, efficient. The cooking was immaculate. Well, <laughs> your your wife was the MVP of that weekend, oh, catching I, I, all the, I, catching all the bluegill. She did catch a lot of fish. Yeah, cooking uh, cooking those meatballs. My gosh, man. Yeah, I, I'd say it's a, I'd say it's a coin toss between her and Nick Hart because Nick did some fabulous. He did cooking too. He that, really did. That yeah. dude can straight up cook. Yep. Um. But uh, we we uh, had a good time. Um, my wife's actually uh, uh, on the board already. She has a uh, uh, deer already in for Hunters for the Hungry, and awesome. um, you know our toll for donating a deer is the gut meat, mm-hmm. a- aka the tenderloins. Yeah. So those innerloins. So we got those. But she killed an ancient doe. It's the oldest doe we've ever killed in our lives between the two of us. It oh was yeah. Ancient. It had almost no back teeth left. It was it was so old. Wow. Its left ear had been completely eaten off by I guess ticks or something over the years. Like it had mm-hmm. it, you could see it. Uh, it was really wild. Yeah. But since our last podcast, I went out west. Um, yeah, I want to hear about that, dude. I killed a tanker, a freaking tanker of a uh, uh, pronghorn buck. Um, there's some contention uh, between uh, the. Uh, the foreman of the hunting outfit out west that measured it and uh and my taxidermist my taxidermist says it's 
gave me a measurement that is well past Boone and Crockett minimum. Yeah. And the other guy gave me just short of Boone and Crockett. And and here's what I will tell you. I'm so happy with that goat. I don't care. I uh, mean, that that was an amazing pronghorn. That was a tanker. Like, when, when I saw the picture of it, I was like, you don't see that on TV. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you. <laughs> that was a monster. I, I have chased those things. This is the fourth year I've chased them. And before that, I think I killed like a nine-inch buck, like a little mm-hmm. respectable buck. For those who don't know how to what a pronghorn looks like, it, uh, what I basically killed over the last three years with my bow, with no help, was uh, well, I also killed a pronghorn doe, but anyway, it was a uh, about a hundred inch whitetail. This is the first pronghorn I ever killed. I'm super proud of it. It was super hard to do, um, but anyway, I, I've rectified that situation, and that's what I intended to do this year. I got help. <laughs> I got a New Mexico tag, and I went down there and. and and knocked one down. Yeah, um, that that was a stud of a pronghorn. Yeah, and my buddy down there was like, "You're bringing your bow, right?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing a rifle. <laughs> I am finally gonna shoot." Because I've been inside, I've been in range of so many Pope and Young antelope. But mm-hmm. once you get inside of about 85, 90 yards, th- that's when they they're just like, I, "I'm out," and yeah. they and they leave. And a pronghorn is arguably as fast as a cheetah. So as soon as it decides to leave. It's out of archery, or if, it's, if it was in archery range, it's out of archery range so fast you can't blink. Yeah. It's out of gun range so fast you can't blink. So that was cool. And then I did my normal DIY up in Colorado in the same, I've been hunting the same area, the same probably 15 square miles, 20 square miles for, since 2008. Killed five bulls, three cows, two bears, and a freaking turkey up there with my bow. No, I killed one bull. I killed one bull with a rifle on uh, first rifle season a while back all on public land and um i didn't see anything this year there were so many people every turnout every flat spot every place you could park a camper put up a tent put up a wall tent there were people Mm -hmm. i mean i ran into so many people on public land it was crazy in fact the the morning before i left i got a note on the side of my camp that said we're coming through with our dog sleds in the morning to train our dogs so they have sled dog teams yeah. that, that were pulling ATVs training in the summertime. It's like, I know it's public use. I know it's managed for multiple use. I, I got run out of my best spot by about a thousand sheep and six, <laughs> six great Pyrenees dogs um, and cowboys on horseback. It was, it was really an interesting deal. I went to three different spots after that to try to find a place where there weren't people and there was people everywhere. So yeah. they say Colorado is getting loved to death and I agree with them. I can see that. Yeah, with uh, with COVID and everybody off work and all that stuff, everybody's got time to be outside. Yeah, and I think the people that are leaving California want to go someplace better, and they want to go someplace where weed is legal, and I'm serious about the, that. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I've been going to Colorado for 12 years now, every single year, and um, I've seen it evolve, and, uh, and I'm serious about that. But I'm, I'm going to have a new groove. I, I'm going to spend more time in Montana, in fact. I leave for Montana about three weeks. I'm gonna scout out uh, Unit 300, Bighorn Sheep Unit 300. Uh, it's called the Unlimiteds, and then I'm gonna meet uh, my good buddy and uh, founding member, member of BHA as well, but a founding member of Kentucky SCI, Larry Richards, up to do. Uh, we both drew our uh, Montana General Mule Deer tags, and he's nice. got friends up there that that uh, can get us some access to some private, and then he's got. Um, some spots on public so so good deal we're looking good so far but you got your uh, fall planned out 
I usually do a year in advance. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually part of my book. It's like plan plan in advance, and you will always have always have the resources and the time. Yeah, you got to pitch that a little bit, or you can wait till the end. Nah, man, I'm not pitching my book on this podcast. I'm oh. really not. All right, it's, all it's right, fair. The only thing I'm gonna, I mean, you know, it's um, it's a it's a help book for hunters, but uh, nah, this this podcast is about informing our brothers and sisters, and and we will talk about Walter at the end because he gives a discount to people, and and he doesn't pay me a nickel. But uh, no, no sponsorship. I'm not even going to pitch my book. So um, gotcha. So what's going on with national issues, brother? There's been quite a bit that's gone on since we last spoke, but uh, I've narrowed it down to about four different topics that we want to cover just briefly here. Uh, the first one is the ACE Act, America's Conservation Enhancement Act. Uh, it uh, it passed the passed the House and going to the Senate for a vote, which I think it should pass unanimously, or somewhat unanimously, but. It should pass the Senate, I believe. It uh, it reauthorizes the North American Wetlands Conservation Act at sixty million dollars until the uh, fiscal year in uh, twenty twenty five. It also reauthorizes the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation Establishment Act at twenty five million dollars until twenty twenty five, which is also the nation's largest grant maker for conservation. Uh, it does a lot of stuff up in the uh, in the Chesapeake as well. It establishes the uh, Chesapeake Bay Initiative, and uh, that provides financial and technical assistance for your farmers and stuff up there to help fight erosion due to livestock waste and uh, crop production. Uh, it also establishes the Chesapeake Watershed Investments for Landscape Defense, the Wild Act. And that helps to uh, that helps to assist the federal, state, local stakeholders in their conservation efforts. It also helps the uh, the ACE Act also helps to invite to fight invasive species, and also creates a CWD task force at the federal level, which hopefully will provide a little bit more money, a little bit more manpower to help uh, to help quell this. Uh, the CWD that's going rampant, and uh, luckily we haven't. We're still we're still CWD free here, correct? As as of today, yes, we are September and, and, 29th. <laughs> yes, September 29th, twenty twenty. I think one of the things that the federal task force is supposed to do is try to coordinate efforts and, and provide some kind of unity of effort mm-hmm. across the states because there's so there's so much going on um, in states like Wisconsin that have had it for you know had CWD for so long. And then there's states like us that we believe will eventually get it. But, I mean, we've got CWD on our border with Tennessee and Missouri. I mean, like right on the border down yeah. there in south southwest Kentucky. And whatever those states do impacts us. So a national task force, if they could provide some standardization um, and unity of effort, would really help. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have the Boundary Waters uh, Protection Act. It, uh, today, actually, this morning, there was a uh, House committee meeting on uh, the Boundary Waters Protection Act, which is H.R. 5598, and uh, hoping to block the copper-nickel mine in the, that are set up along the outskirts of the uh, the Boundary Waters uh, canoe area. Uh, four, or three, will go to the, uh, the pebble mine, which there's a lot of interesting things that happened uh, <laughs> that happened with that uh well first we'll we'll start off with the uh the pebble tapes i guess <laughs> the controversy <laughs> yeah the uh the ceos from the uh, pebble partnership and the northern dynasty minerals which were the two companies behind the pebble mine up in uh bristol bay alaska or, or alaska yeah. yeah 
they were uh, they were caught on tape. But I guess you would call them undercover. I don't under what? an under an environmental group posed as investors in potentially the Pebble Mine, which for folks that, that are not tracking this, um, the Pebble Mine is is a plan to mine heavy metals and gold in Bristol Bay, Alaska, which is our biggest salmon fishery up there. And uh, an environmental group dressed up in some $3,000 suits and posed as investors, and they caught the leadership um, of the Pebble Mining Initiative, the uh, two companies are which ones again? It was uh, Pebble Partnership and the Northern Dynasty Minerals. They t- they got those guys bragging about how they're in the pockets of the governor and Senator Murkowski, and it was it's it was damning, extremely, and contradicting everything that they've told everybody, right? Pretty much. So yeah. and also and uh, uh, Donald Trump Jr. talked to his his father about it, and uh, as of right now, that is blocked. Until probably after the election, then we'll. <laughs> that's. Then that's we, we had a discussion about that this past <laughs> weekend, and uh, we'll more than likely find out after the election the uh, the outcome of that. Yeah, everybody thinks that that's that's pretty much what's going to happen. But the bottom line is, is that you know Donald Trump Jr. I just seen a picture of him with his uh, his. Uh, I don't know if it's his first, but it it was a probably a 280 inch bull elk he got with his bow, and I don't know if it was on public land or not, but. He looked like he sweat his butt off to get the yeah. shot. I mean, he looked he's he's a legitimate hunter, man. Mm-hmm. And he said to his father, you know, that this pebble mine is not a good thing. So um the president went to the new uh, United States Army Corps of Engineers and said, "Hey, you know, we need more information." And it's so funny cuz they kind of play together, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 Trump administration because his son the sportsman asked his dad to delay the pebble mine. So President Trump goes to the Corps of Engineers and says, we need more information on the way they're going to mitigate and on the environmental impacts and, and the pebble partnership and, and the folks that want to build this mine need to come back to us with more information before we go to the next round or the next level of permitting. Well, it's not two weeks later. Those guys at the Pebble Partnership are being, um, think they're whining and dining or, or Im- trying to impress investors, but they were environmentalists um, mm-hmm. dressed up as investors. And what were they saying? They, the guy, the Pebble Partnership was saying, oh, you know, we told them it's going to be this little bitty mine. It's not going to have a big impact. And, but what's really going to happen is we're going to build it like 10 times the size we got in the plan, and we're going to use all the roads we got in here to do other things. And it, the the, init- the initial plan was for like 20 years worth or something like that, and he's like, no, it'll go for 180. Yeah. So, so <laughs> the president says, we need to know more about what the Pebble Partners are going to do. Corps of Engineers, ask them for that before we give them a permit. And then these environmentalists bust them <laughs> on that exact point. Like yep. they they perfect, told us half perfect timing. Yep, they told us half the story. Sons of bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and see, and hopefully stuff like that translates over into like what's going on at at uh, in the Boundary Waters. The you know the thing that upsets me about the Boundary Waters is that's not even an American company. If it was an American or Canadian company, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's a Chilean company. It's yeah. a South American mining company, yeah. and they're asking for permits to wreck and and. A natural resource that you can't put a price on. You can't put a price on the boundary waters. And right. there's there's no no copper nickel mine ever has gone without a leaching incident. So at some point they're gonna negatively impact mm-hmm. our resource and that money. While there be some jobs to the people up there, 
the parent company isn't even an American company. Yeah. That that's the part that gets me on that one. Yeah. And lastly, the great news of the removal of William Perry Penley as acting director of Bureau of Land Management. Na 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 <laughs> na 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 Hey 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 Goodbye. A lawsuit was filed by Montana's governor, Steve Bullock, and uh the uh the judge found that uh, Penley was he was in office unlawfully and for what was it four hundred and ninety something days whatever serving it was un- serving unlawfully and so he is gone told him to pack up his stuff and get out and every action that he initiated in that four hundred and whatever days it was is null and void. So I, I don't know how they I mean you know if you've ever if you've ever thrown a bait cast reel with. Um, you know, braided line or super line on it, and you got a backlash. You you just you, what do you do? You got to start cutting it. You you can't get that yeah. out. That's that's a knot you can't get out, right? I don't know how they untie been there more than once. <laughs> I don't know how they untie that knot. That dude's been there. He moved the entire operation from yeah. met, from Metro DC to to Colorado. Mm-hmm. He moved it across country. I don't know how many people he lost in that effort. Who said I'm not moving? You know. To the Rocky Mountains. I'm yeah. born and raised on the East Coast. That's what happens when you move an agency that far. I've seen it happen in the military when they moved personnel command to Kentucky uh, from Virginia. Is half of the people that, you, that work there were brand new. We hired all Kentucky people. But uh, I don't know how they unknit that sweater. Um, and uh, But I'm damn happy. Oh, yeah. yeah. So starting that over from scratch. Yeah. See See what he comes up with next. Yeah, I wonder how much how much cost to the taxpayers will be if they decide to move that thing back to Virginia. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I mean that guy, that guy's just uh, he needed to go. But if you know, I mean, you, you got to think since it's out there now, it'll probably stay out there. I would hope we wouldn't give another bill to the taxpayers to move it again. Yeah, um, but there was some goodness in it being close to the Department of Interior. Mm-hmm. That's you know. So that's why the the Metro DC location was a good thing because it is a subordinate, you know, DOI. So we'll see. Um, blows my mind. But that is all I have on national stuff. A lot going on, a lot to cover. But it's up to you for state. Yeah, state issues. Before I say that, let me let me talk about this beautiful location we're at right now. Oh, it's gorgeous. We um we're trying to social distance while doing a podcast together. So if you guys can imagine this, we're at opposite ends of a picnic table with the recorder in the middle. And thank God we have really long cables <laughs> or headset uh, wires that go back to the recorder. But we were talking about where we could do it. And um, we ended up at the the tailwaters of Taylorsville Lake. And I'm telling you, man, uh, the wind just stopped. And the sun came out. The storm missed us. So... Yeah, it, um, there was a light sprinkle just a little bit ago, but it's gone now, and yeah, it's gorgeous out here. A few people fishing. Yeah, there's people. We can watch people fishing. I haven't heard any splashing and catching, but uh, I, I will tell you this: if you guys heard some some wind in the background, it seems to have died down. So we are outside enjoying our public lands while we podcast. So I apologize if you hear any more wind in the microphone. So last podcast was on uh, August 16th after the special called uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting on August the 12th where seven of our nine commissioners uh, voted uh, unanimously to give Chairman uh, of the Fish and Wildlife Commission, Dr. Carl Kleinard, the authority to secure the Attorney General's services uh, to sue the Governor, the Finance and Administration Cabinet, 
and the Tourism, Arts, and Heritage Cabinet over uh, Mr. Rich Storm's uh, contract extension. Um, and that was on August 16th. Um, on August 31st, uh, an assistant attorney general out of Daniel Cameron's office filed a complaint on behalf of the Fish and Wildlife Commission and Dr. Kleiner, the chairman. Uh, and it specifically named the Finance and Administration Cabinet Secretary, Miss Holly McCoy Johnson, and the Tourism Arts and Heritage Cabinet uh, Secretary, Mr. Mike Berry, um, as uh, his opponents in this lawsuit. Uh, and it's a 97-page document. So once again, you know, folks, when you listen to this, it's our, it's our, it's kind of our job to unravel all this and do the best we can to just report on it as almost, you know, just like straight up journalists. Um, so you don't have to dig and figure it out. Um, and at the end, of course, we give you our email addresses. If there's something you're lost on or you want more information, we'll, we'll, we'll be happy to dialogue with you via email. But anyway, it's a 97 page document. Um, read it three times. <laughs> Most recently read it again today to try to get the context to be able to do this podcast as best I can. So uh, out of the fir- out of the 97 page document, the first 11 pages are background and context so that the judge, Judge Wingate in Frankfurt would understand the background and context of the complaint. Um, and then it goes into the declaratory judgments. So the first declaratory judgment, um, says that the commission has the power to appoint um, the commissioner whom I'm going to call from here on out the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife because we have nine volunteer commissioners on the Fish and Wildlife Commission and the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife is also called a commissioner. I'm either going to call him Mr. Storm or the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. So the declaratory judgment one, the commission has the power to appoint the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. The commission has the power to determine the length of the contract of the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. The commission has the sole discretion to execute a new contract for the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. The commission determines the pay of the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife, and no other official has any role in the appointment of the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Thus, the commission wants the court to confirm all of the things I just said in declaratory judgment number one and to uh, emphasize and make, you know, permanent through a court decision that the commission has that sole authority. Declaratory judgment number two, the secretary of the finance administration cabinet has established procedures for hiring uh, and Um, letting contracts. Um, The head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources serves by a personnel services contract that the Finance Administration Cabinet processes. The personnel services contract is also defined in the declaratory judgment number two. Uh, And it also says that those contracts are generally awarded to the best qualified person. And the best qualified person is determined by the contracting agency, in this case, the Fish and Wildlife Commission. It also says that it's a non-competitive contract and it qualifies for treatment as a sole source purchase. The commission also has the right to hire the Department of Fish and Wildlife head as a non-competitive negotiation. It also says Storm meets these requirements. 
It also says the Finance Administration Cabinet nor the Tourism, Arts, and Heritage Cabinet identified Storm failing in any qualification or experience as grounds for obstructing his new contract. Now, folks, all the things that I'm saying are in the complaint of our Fish and Wildlife Commission trying to get Mr. Storm back. The things I'm saying are not a judgment of the court yet. It's This is just the complaint that the Attorney General's Office filed on, the par- on behalf of the commission. So that complaint continues. Um, the contract was final. Um, the AG says the contract was final when the uh, Government Contract Review Committee approved it, and thus the Finance and Administration Cabinet cannot change it. Finally, in uh, declaratory judgment number two, the commission believes Storm is already lawfully appointed because his contract was approved by the Fish and Wildlife Commission and the Government Contract Review Committee. Declaratory judgment number three, the second contract. So the Fish and Wildlife Commission gave him, if you go back to podcasts that we did on August 16th, I went down a very detailed timeline about when these contracts were issued and signed in the Attorney General's complaint in Franklin Court, Franklin, um, I believe it's Franklin Circuit Court, Judge, uh, the declaratory judgment number three is that the second contract was executed in the same way as the first. So if the first wasn't enough to put Mr. Storm back to work, the second should have been. Uh, It's basically an echo. And then uh, it's listed as count number four, so it's the, the fourth item the Attorney General is asking for, is request for temporary and permanent injunctive relief, uh, a declaration that Storm's contract is valid, a declaration that Storm's contract has already been lawfully, a declaration that Storm has already been lawfully appointed, and a writ of prohibition from further interference by Finance Administration Cabinet and Tourism Arts and Heritage Cabinet. Um the remaining 77 pages are just backup documentation um, for Judge Wingate. So basically, three declaratory judgments um, in the complaint from the AG uh, filed in Judge Wingate's court. The first one is that the commission has the power by law to appoint the head of the agency and that they can write him a contract and they have the sole authority to do that. The second is the finance cabinet and tourism cabinet have no role um, that the Fish and Wildlife Commission gets to pick who they want and that they would pick the best qualified person and that it's a non-competitive contract and qualifies for sole source purchasing. The third is, or excuse me, the, the end of the second is that since the Government Contract Review Committee already approved the contract the Fish and Wildlife Commission gave Mr. Storm, he is currently the lawful head of the agency or head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And then declaratory judgment number three just echoes number two because he was given two separate contracts by Fish and Wildlife Commission. And then number four is the request for temporary and injunctive relief, temporary and permanent injunctive relief, a declaration that Storm's contract is valid, a declaration that Storm has already been lawful impo- uh, lawfully appointed, and a writ of prohibition from further interference by Finance Administration or Tourism. So there's four points to the complaint. Um... I don't think anyone is going to argue that by law the Fish and Wildlife Commission has the power to appoint um, the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. It's black and white in law. I think the question is going to be, and I'm not trying to editorialize, but the question is going to be who has the power to actually finish it and write the contract and put him on, on payroll and get him back to work. Yeah. And so 
uh, like I said, the remaining 77 pages of those 97 um, are uh, backup documents. So if any one of our listeners wants to get a hold of that 97-page document, uh, first 11 pages is context. Um, the final 77 pages um, are backup documentation. So there's really only 9 or 10 pages that is actually the complaint of the Fish and Wildlife Commission that the Attorney General took to court against the governor's administration, but they did not name the governor. They named specifically the Finance and Administration Cabinet uh, and its secretary and the Tourism, Arts, and Heritage Cabinet and their secretary. So that's what happened on August 31st. Fast forward two weeks. Um, Judge Thomas Wingate in Frankfurt has had that uh, complaint. Uh, for two weeks, and on the 14th of September, he denied the request of the Attorney General on behalf of the Commission for Injunctive Relief, saying the Attorney General did not show that Mr. Storm or the Commission suffered immediate and irreparable injury. So what the judge is saying is that uh, injunctive relief, which which basically is where the court steps in and, and says, stop, go, you know, we have to uh, go back to the way it was, or or, or they provide some kind of um, uh, method for m- moving forward. Um, but the AG asked for temporary and permanent injunctive relief. Uh, Judge Wingate said no, uh, because Storm nor the commission suffered immediate and irreparable injury. Then Judge Wingate ordered that both parties in the case appear in his court on October 7th at 9 a.m. So that's where we're at. Um, we still don't have a commissioner at work every day um, or the head of the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources not at work every day. Our commission voted unanimously to give Mr. Storm a new contract. Um, the governor was willing to give him a different contract, but not that contract, and now we're in court. And um, we've been through August, and now we're going to be into October before it even the arguments are heard in front of Judge Wingate. So... The good news for the sportsmen and women out there is that uh, until that time, uh, we have Deputy Commissioner uh, Brian Clark uh, running things. Um, and, uh, you know, he's fully qualified to do that. Uh, he was the deputy to Mr. Storm. And um, he was actually uh, at the full commission meeting that we had on September 25th. So I'm going to go over that seven and a half hour meeting that I set in. Uh, for everybody so that you guys know what's going on in your Fish and Wildlife Commission that has nothing to do with. This is the business of the sportsmen and women. What I just talked about is the lawsuit filed by the Attorney General on behalf of the Commission against the Governor's Administration, specifically the Finance and Administration Cabinet and Tourism Arts and Heritage Cabinet. That is still up in the air, and we won't know anything until after October 7th when they're scheduled to meet in Judge Wingate's court and at least plead the at least initial part of their case. So that's the legal case. This is the Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting that happened on September 25th. Uh, the very first thing that happened, as always, is um, the normal housekeeping item uh, items of uh, approving the minutes from the previous two meetings because they had a, uh, a regular meeting and then they had the special called meeting to uh, give Chairman Kleinard the authority to sue the governor. So those two meetings had minutes, and those minutes were approved. And then the quarterly financial statements were approved. The first action item was to approve the 2021 budget. Now, um, for folks that are uh, following this, 
um, it, it might seem a little hard to follow uh, because the budget um, happens is supposed to happen every two years in Kentucky. Um, we're supposed to get um, a vote in even years for a two-year budget. Uh, the governor only did a one-year budget this year, and the way that budget process works is the governor sends his budget to the House Budget Committee chairman, who turns the budget into a bill. This year that was House Bill 352, and you can look that up and read all about it. Um, and what that bill does is it establishes the total amount of money or the total appropriation from the legislature to the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Now, it's a little weird with the Department of Fish and Wildlife because um, 70 to 90%, depending on which year, of the Department of Fish and Wildlife's budget does not come from the general fund. 50% roughly comes from fish and wildlife, uh, or excuse me, um, hunting, fishing, trapping license sales. The other 35% comes from matching federal grants under Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson. And then there's roughly 15% that comes through boating registration and some other uh, federal grants or gifts. Um, and so we get a total budget, and this year it was $68 million, uh, give or take. Um, that total number gets to Fish and Wildlife, and then what has to happen is the division chiefs um, of each division um, – Within the department, you know, the wildlife, fisheries, engineering, admin, um, education, and, and information, and then marketing. All those budget, all those division chiefs have to roll up a um, a budget that they want. How much it's going to cost to run their division, and then that becomes part of the total budget. So we know we got sixty-eight million for this year, but we don't know what we're going to have for next year. Okay, so. Um, this was an approval for the 2021 budget, which is basically since the state f fiscal year runs from July of this year through June of 2021, we still don't have that budget approved. I know it might sound kind of kooky because um, it's already September um, in 2020 and the department's not got their budget approved. It's been a weird year with COVID. And now we also have new commissioners. So this budget should have been approved because it's it's for the July 2020 through June 2021 fiscal year. Um, but we didn't even get it approved in this meeting. Um, the commissioners voted um, to table it because the new commissioners in the first, uh, the sixth, and the, the first, fifth, and sixth districts were unfamiliar with the process. So we still don't have a budget. So action item um, A4, if you have the agenda, was tabled. Action item A5 um, was something that the department's talked about for a long time. It was to determine a recommended September Canada goose season timing. And the department's biologists did a survey. Um, basically, they recommended uh, no change so that the department, or excuse me, the early goose season would remain statewide from September 16th through September 30th. Um, some of the commissioners um, believe, and, and quite a few sportsmen agree with them, that farming practices have changed and that we would do better during the early goose season and we would have a high, higher harvest, uh, especially of Canada geese, um, which is really all this applies to, if we could move um, the season earlier. Uh, there was much discussion, but uh, it came down to uh, emotion um, from uh, Commissioner Knott from the 4th District that 
uh, early goose season be moved um, from the 16th of September through the 30th of September to the 1st of September through the 15th for the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th districts. So that's basically... Um, setting up an eastern and western goose zone. Well, we just got rid of the eastern and western goose well, zones. It's really funny. It's basically setting like an, it's basically setting up like along the Ohio mm-hmm. goose zone with a little bit of central, you know, because the fourth is kind of where you're at. Yeah, that's it's me. Kind of central. Yeah. Um, but so his proposal was is is basically the the fish and wildlife districts that run along the Ohio plus the fourth, um, would in fact have first the fifteenth. And then the 5th through the ninth districts, which is basically all the southern districts and the eastern districts, mm-hmm. um, including the Cincinnati area, would stay the 16th through the 30th. Um, second District Commissioner Fisher uh, seconded that motion. There was a lot of discussion. It was the first vote that I've seen in the Fish and Wildlife Commission in my memory. And, of course, I'm going just from memory right now. I've been to a lot of these meetings. But it's the first one that I can remember that wasn't unanimous. But it did pass. Now, here's the thing. Um, It has to wait until um, 2021 to go before the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for approval because it's a migratory bird and we don't have the authority to establish a zone. If we did a statewide rule, we could move the dates. But since we're establishing zones, it has to go before U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So if this gets approved by U.S. Fish and Wildlife, it will not take effect until 2022-2023. Um, the next one was to allow crossbows as a legal method of hunting for migratory birds. Um, basically, this is already legal in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's rulebook. Uh, we're just going, we've talked about this, or the department and the commission's talked about this for a long time, uh, probably seven, eight months. Uh, this brings us into compliance or, or in, in accordance with um U.S. Fish and Wildlife serves current rules. So that was approved, uh, and you'll see that. How many people do you know that hunt migratory birds with crossbows? Dude, I've killed one in my entire life with a vertical bow, mm-hmm. and it's because a flock landed in this big, wide creek bottom that I was hunting, um, and they were just causing all kinds of just racket, and mm-hmm. it was very late <laughs> It was very late in the deer season. You know, our deer season overlaps the waterfowl season in yep. the late side of it. And I had a had a real hot tip on a on a buck that hadn't shed his antlers. And I was so mad. I'm like, if you guys don't get out of here, I will kill and eat one of you. And I did. And I don't know anybody that really does it on purpose. I mean, know? I guess I guess that just coincides with the new crossbow regulations here. Just it, it has nothing to do with us. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made it legal a while ago. What what people are saying it's for is to hunt them in urban areas. Resident oh, geese, yeah. resident geese in urban yep. areas, because a lot of municipalities have um, moratoriums. Like uh, t- back in nineteen and ninety eight, I was a small city mayor, and my small city had an ordinance that you couldn't fire a firearm within three hundred feet of a dwelling. Yeah, and those uh, all of our houses were within hundred yards of each other, so basically you couldn't fire a firearm in city limits. Mm-hmm. So if you had a ornamental pond covered up in non-migratory geese that would make some wonderful sausage or Christmas goose or something. Um, that's what we are told. That's why it got approved at the federal gotcha. level. This is, um, I can't, I can't tell you, um, anything other than that. 
So anyway, uh, the next action item was um, to implement an optional two days of veterans hunting for waterfowl. And for everybody who's listening to this, on March 12, 2019, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was modified to allow for two days of veterans hunts. States may select two days per duck hunting zone designated as youth waterfowl hunting days and two days per duck hunting zone designated as veterans and active military personnel waterfowl hunting days in in addition to the regular duck season. This has been talked about at length at your commission um, and it's really hard for them to figure out how to do this equitably, give veterans some extra time and not step on youth because the feedback is while veterans would like two extra days, they don't want them those two extra days at the expense of youth hunting. So this was tabled and they're going to continue to work on it. Um, the next action item was to allow experimental dove fields um, that would um, put some restrictions on some dove fields. And the real experiment is really with bag limits and tracking, um, but also to allow adult onset hunters 16 plus to participate on those dove fields in mentored hunts for the R3 uh, program, you know, the um, recruit, retain, and reactivate program. Um, you know, it's it's uh, probably the number one hunting that we do in the state of Kentucky um, by, I was going to say demographic or population, like the, the number one amount of people that are out hunting is that is that does season you know i mean if you just there's stuff yeah. there's cars parked everywhere hunters are like on top of each other people tell stories all the time about getting peppered as as you know mm-hmm. number sevens are falling out of the sky <laughs> you've got you've got people that do that that don't hunt anything else yeah absolutely and um so our commission talked about it at length they said you know hey it's probably the number one fun thing to do and we could use more dove fields the dove fields are expensive they're hard to they're hard to make. They're hard to not only hard to hard to make a good dove field. It's hard to make a good dove field right. Yeah, you quite often put a lot of effort into it and don't get squat. So there's a lot of discussion. Um, there was a motion and a second, um, and this was the second time in recent memory that it wasn't unanimous. But uh, this did pass. Um, and what it's going to do is um, there's going to be two experimental fields, uh, one in Big Rivers and one at Curtis Gates. And um, they would limit the access of folks, um, and then um, they would compare results between limited access dove fields and open access dove fields. Uh, how many people hunted them? How many birds were killed? And it's really to try to get some some demographic trends, not actually trends on the doves. It's demographics. Yeah. How many people are hunting? How many are they killing? Um, and there's there will be um, uh, how many how many people can hunt those two experimental fields and and they're going to get like a a card to record their harvest and they have to turn that in and so that's that part and then it's also going to allow um like 16 years old and older um in those same fields um in the dove fields for mentored hunts so this did pass Uh, the next one was a action item to amend a regulation to allow that currently allows only one loaded and uncased shotgun per hunter in a blind or hunting location. And this was specific to the Ballard zone. Um, there was a kind of a strange rule, um, in place, um, in the Ballard zone where you can only have one gun per hunter and a limited number of shells per hunter. And they're trying to clean that up. Uh, so basically what's going to happen now is, uh, you'll be able to have a cased 
unloaded second gun per blind in case someone has a catastrophic malfunction, something that can't be fixed, their hunt's not over. They can grab, yeah. the, they can grab the backup gun. Uh, and that passed unanimously. Um, the next action item was to clarify and enhance night coyote hunting provisions. And basically, when this passed um, a few meetings ago, what we didn't um, see happen, your commission did not um, allow um, in that same update um, primitive shorter range methods on private lands. So what they did was they allowed center fire on private lands in 6.5 Creedmoor or smaller um, on private only. December 1st through March 31st, so basically in between, you know, right at the end of deer season um, and uh, before turkey season starts, um, you'd be able to hunt coyotes at night with a centerfire rifle 6.5 cream more or smaller. But what wasn't put in that uh, regulation was you could also use shotgun slugs, muzzleloaders, crossbows, and vertical bows. So this went ahead and added those um, weapons, um, in, including the centerfire rifle. Uh, and it passed uh, unanimously. That's a pretty popular round right now. I've yet to shoot one. 6.5. Well, we don't editorialize. So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but what I will tell you is to look at the ballistics tables mm-hmm. for 6.5 Creedmoor and 308. And for a matching bullet, there's almost nothing different out to 400 yards. Now, if you're the kind of shooter that can shoot accurately past 400 yards, the Creedmoor starts to leave the 308 in its wake significantly. The the Creedmoor is ballistically superior at longer ranges. In Kentucky, we don't have those longer ranges. Right, yeah. Everybody wants to have the latest, fastest, coolest. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll just tell you, folks, lay lay the ballistic tables for a 308 and a 6.5 Creedmoor, same grain weight bullet, um, and they're almost identical out out to 400. Now, once you get past once you once you approach 400 yards and past the creedmoor is much better but Hmm. we could have a whole show on that (laughs) um the next one is action item is uh permit fees and timelines um basically the department recommended amending um some specific licenses and permits that they issue um and to make some uh, available for more than just a daily to to have like a monthly so that to run that down they updated um the nuisance wildlife control operator permit. They updated the commercial captive wildlife permit. They're updating the annual transportation permit. And um, they're adding a monthly permit um, to Otter Creek, um, where they currently have, uh, I think, just a daily and an annual. Um, And then they're adding uh, changes to federal area permits as well. (coughs) And that's, uh, excuse me, that ended the action items, okay? So for everybody that's listening, I'm going to give you another quick update. We used to have eight meetings, and we would have a month, um, like this month would be the commission meeting where they um, worked on things that just needed to be voted on. Last month, prior to this month, we would have had committee meetings, and there were four standing committees, um, wildlife, public relations, uh, fisheries, and administration and those committees got abolished and we no longer have a month of meeting a meeting the month prior to develop the things that are going to be voted on this month um the the thought process there was is that that 30 days between the committee and the commission meeting didn't give sportsmen and women and, and our 
rod and gun clubs and our conservation organizations times time to update the membership and sometimes it wasn't 30 days sometimes it's only two weeks between those meetings because one would be in august and one would be in september so now we only have four meetings per year and in the morning we do the action items uh your your commission excuse me uh, i'm not on it so i need to stop saying we in the morning uh the commission does the action items and then as soon as the action items are done they take a short break and then they do discussion items now for an item to make the discussion list, it has to have been a new business item previously. So no discussion item can be voted on until the next quarterly meeting. Okay, so the, the items that we're talking now are not up for a vote um, for approval. If the, item, if the discussion items were approved, then they will be action items in December. Okay, so... Moving into the discussion items, um, there was an informational update uh, given in a discussion on fall turkey hunt harvest trends, surveys, and potential regulation changes. Um, this has been a new business uh, or, t or discussion item that's previously been tabled. There's been a lot of debate at your commission um, for a number of months on this. Um, and what we can tell folks is that uh, our department does not recommend making any changes to our fall turkey hunting as it currently is, with bag limits or season dates. Um, basically, uh, there, if you look at the agenda, if you it's a public document. If you look at the agenda attachment D1, um, the big body paragraph there in the middle talks about harvest trends, and I'm only going to talk about one. Uh, it talks about telecheck information for the past decade indicates stable trends in both the percentage of hens in the fall harvest and the percentage of successful fall hunters who harvest more than one turkey. So over 10 years, the percentage of successful fall hunters who harvest more than one is 11 to 16%. So the vast majority, um, right about you know, 85% to 89% of fall turkey hunters harvest only one bird. So if you were to reduce the bag limit, which was what this was talking about, the commissioners were concerned that our four bird limit in the fall was too liberal and that we needed to reduce um, the um, the forward bird bag limit, especially the bag limit on hens. So potential discussion was, you know, instead of three hens and, and a tom, it would be, you know, one hen, one tom or something like that. Um, the data doesn't bear that out. Um, it's it's potentially anecdotal according to our biologists that that we see less turkeys being killed or we see less turkeys on the landscape because the harvest trends are the same and so while there may actually be um, a smaller population of turkeys on the landscape our success rates uh, are pretty stable so if we're have a 10-year trend of you know 85 to 89 percent of fall turkey hunters only killing one bird if we did want to lower the fall harvest, the only way to do it would be to shorten the fall season, and specifically the, the fall firearm season. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was recommended against. So um, the fall turkey hunting uh, discussion item that was potentially going to be put on the December agenda as an action item failed. Um, the next discussion item was information update on bobcat hunting and trapping. Um, the wildlife division recommended no change in the hunting seasons uh, and uh, that research uh, they've done thus far indicates the necessity 
of a means to survey hunters who target bobcats, uh, whether or not they harvest a bobcat or not. So um, no change, but more information needed. So uh, the Wildlife Division further recommended to improve monitoring and get more information that a uh, $5 bobcat hunting permit, uh, which the hunter would provide their contact information and a, and then would also uh, survey successful and unsuccessful bobcat hunters each year, and then also to consider mandatory tooth donations so that they could get more data on the bobcats and then require uh, bobcats um, taken under our damage uh, where we have um, um, wildlife damage permits available under Kentucky Revised Statute 150.170, require bobcats under that law uh, to be uh, telechecked as well. So no change to the season. Potentially you'll see a $5 permit um, coming, uh, which would require Hunter to uh, provide contact information and take a survey uh, and potentially also have to um, have a mandatory tooth or jaw section donation. Um, that passed, so that will be an action item. If you're upset about that, you got 90 days between now and the December meeting to talk to your commissioners, uh, but that passed, and you'll see that as a action item in December. Uh, wanton waste law. Uh, we have kicked this dead horse. <laughs> We've kicked this dead horse and kicked this dead horse. In fact, it was a bill request in the legislature in January. There was a bill request that uh, never got out of, uh, I think it was in the House, uh, never got out of the house, and if it can't get out of the house, then you won't see, you know, a, a companion bill in the Senate or, or the mirrored bill in the Senate. Um, so we're starting over from scratch again. And um, as a discussion item, the wildlife and law enforcement divisions both recommended that uh, the commission promulgate a wanton waste regulation or law, and it be advanced to an action item in December. Um, this passed. Uh, it's pretty easy pass. Um, basically, what they're saying is is specific to deer, elk, bear, and game birds. That uh, for uh, deer, elk, and bear, that the four quarters, the inner and outer loins, uh, would be minimum required to be harvested and taken out of the field, or you would be guilty of wanton waste. And that it would be at least the breast for all game birds. Um, the law would then also. Um, make sure everybody understands that dumping of carcasses is actually littering and the fine for littering is higher than what the conservation officers would be able to issue a a citation for. So they want to keep the littering fine and not uh, have a specific fish and wildlife law for dumping. But this would be wanton waste and it passed. So you will see that as an action item in December. Um, there was a significant amount of discussion on depredation tags. So for those of you who are not tracking this, um, orchards are some of the biggest users of depredation tags, but also any other ag uh, outfit. Um, orchards don't just suffer when deer eat uh, the berries and the fruits of, on their trees. They suffer when the bucks come through and, and rub. Uh, and some of those big tree farms can suffer tens of thousands of dollars in damage um, just in a single rut season. So they'll fi- they'll get depredation tags, and, um, and uh, those deer are killed, and they have to stay where they lay. The problem with the depredation tag is you can't remove it. So if, if you took the meat off of it, that would be legal. But the carcass has to stay where it lays. So there's some interesting challenges with that. And there was a lot of discussion um, 
uh, and uh, um, Commissioners Fisher and Lillard asked the department to um, work on a depredation tag idea or to fix or change a few things on depredation tags and that should show up as new business in December. So yeah, wanton waste law was a discussion item and since it passed, it will move on to be an action item in December. Uh, the next discussion item was um, collection of customer emails. Um, basically the department doesn't collect all the emails, um, which is interesting because other, other states already require you to do an online profile when you buy your hunting license and to have an online profile, you have to give them your um, email address. So we're, we're not 100% on that and uh, we can do better. Um, for those of you who are tracking, have been to a lot of meetings. Um, we are, we have had a, con the, the, the commission, I keep saying we, the commission and or the department has had a contract um, with whichever branch of state government is in charge of automation and, and, and you know, websites and apps. And we are supposed to see sometime uh, late this year or early next year, the department's finally going to release their hunting and fishing apps. Uh, I know the fishing app's been ready and, and sitting on go for quite a long time. I know the hunting app has been in the works for quite a long time. But be through that release of new, more modern automation, the department will gather more customer emails. And the more emails they have, the more they can do surveys, the more they can also send you updates and alerts and stuff. So uh, it's actually a good thing. Um, it's not a big brother thing. That was an informational item, even though it was under discussion. The next discussion item um, is the addition of the Robert J. Barth Lake in Campbell County to the FINS program, the Fishing and Neighborhoods program. Uh, and that was moved on to an action item, so that will be an action item in December. The next one was to enact a 20-inch minimum size limit and a one-fish daily creel limit on largemouth bass at High Splint Lake. For those uh, who think that that sounds familiar, it's because High Splint Lake um, saw the new state record come out of there. We, so we had a young man fishing, uh, I think he was fishing a big old soft plastic, a big giant soft plastic. Anyway, he, uh, he caught the new state record at High Splint Lake. So as soon as he did that, there's been entirely too much, too much pressure, too much pressure on the lake, and um, there uh, too many big fish being yanked out of there. Um, and now the department wants to enact a 20-inch minimum size limit and a one-fish daily creel limit, and that's a discussion item. But it was approved, so it will be an action item in December. The next discussion item was to amend the regulation to enact catch and release only restrictions on Clear Fork tributary of Gasper River. And uh, basically, if you're from that part of the state, you're probably already tracking this. We had a fish kill down there on the Clear Fork, and it spread downstream, impacting the main stream of the Gasper. And um, the forage fish are not back yet, which means if the forage fish aren't back yet, the predatory fish, which are the ones we normally fish for, aren't back. And so they want the river to be entirely catch and release only until it recovers from the fish kill. And that was a discussion item that got approved, so it will be an action item in December. The next one is to gather public input on allowing a restaurant at Gist Creek Lake Marina to sell alcoholic beverages by the drink, similar to state parks and other venues. Um, the uh, department only has um, two uh, marinas that 
they basically are in charge of that you know all the other marinas in the state you, you're looking at really state parks or or privately owned and uh gist creek's one of the ones the department uh, has purview over and um uh they enter the department uh enter, entered into a contract and grant of rights uh, agreement with the uh, Shelby County Industrial and Developmental Foundation in 1960 uh, about the Gist Creek Marina and it's being um, refurbished and updated and the restaurant that's in there is asking to serve beer and wine by the drink with their meals. And that discussion item was approved and moved to an action item in December. Um, the next discussion item was a uh, multi-faceted uh, water safety uh, update and um, some changes to water safety, uh, specifically water safety laws to require a personal flotation device, use requirements on manually propelled uh, vessels, wakeboards, and other apparatuses pulled or propelled by vessels. Um, and the law enforcement division um, had the following points: uh, they want to have, they want to start building or encouraging conservation organizations or civic organizations to build personal flotation device loaner stations. Now we actually have these on some Corps of Engineer lakes and we have them on some other lakes around the state because local groups have um, started building them and stocking them with, you know, used or new, certainly serviceable uh, personal flotation devices. And there's a really good reason for it. In 2018, we had 47 drowning deaths. In 2019, we had 36. As everybody knows, this year, uh, use of our public lands and waters has gone through the roof, and we already have had 47 drownings by the end of September. So our, our three-year high, we have eclipsed it. We're, we're going to eclipse it because we've already tied it, uh, and we still have a few months to go before the end of the year. Um, so it's a, it's a multi-pronged attack is personal flotation loaner stations, personal flotation device loaner stations, an update or change to boater safety certification requirements, uh, enhanced enforcement of the requirement that PFDs be readily accessible on Class A vehicles. So, uh, Class A vessels, excuse me. So, basically, personal flotation device loaner stations, one. Two, an update, uh, an enhancement, it sounded like when I listened to the briefing, to boater safety certification requirements. And currently, most conservation officers are only issuing a warning if personal flotation devices are not readily accessible on Class A vessels. You don't have to wear them, but they have to be readily accessible. On most boats, they're not. Most boats, they're in a hatch with an anchor and a bunch of crap thrown on top of them, and they're just not really accessible. So they're going to start enforcing that. Uh, this was the discussion item that passed, so you will see it uh, for action um, in the future. Then we go to new business items. So once again, folks, in the in the new format, we don't have committee meetings in August and a commission meeting in September. We have just a commission meeting in September. We start off with action items that were previously discussion items from last quarter's meeting. Then our discussion items this quarter's meeting were previously new business items. So the way it works is a new business item is where something comes into the commission. It can turn into a discussion item 90 days later. So any of the new business items that I'm talking about now, your commission can uh, move them forward to become discussion items. So there'll be more research and more, uh, more work done on these new business items between now and December, but they can't be action items in December. They can only be discussion items. 
that gives you, the sportsman or woman out there, 90 days to talk to your commissioner about these things, to talk to your rod and gun club or your conservation organization about these things if they're important to you. Then in December, they become discussion items. Then you have another 90 days from December to, to um, the uh, March uh, quarterly meeting when it could potentially become an action item. So r- you have roughly six months when these things hit the department as a new business item. Um, so the first new business item was to amend provisions for Ballard Boat Rights South Shore and Slows WMAs to enhance waterfowl hunting opportunities. Uh, the Wildlife Division proposed that we change the description of Ballard WMA Ohio River Hunting Exclusion Zone, that we enhance waterfowl hunt management on Boatwright WMA, that we change the shot shell limit from 15 to 25 on Ballard Boatwright and Slews, that we change the Slews WMA Jenny Ho Unit quota hunt periods from weekly to Thursday, Friday, and then a second Saturday, Sunday block, Saturday, Sunday, Monday block. Uh, removal of seasonally drawn blinds at Slews, Grassy Pond, Powell's Lake, and Highland Creek units, and remove the requirement to hunt from a blind at South Shores WMA. So you may see that as a discussion item next quarter. If that's important to you, talk to your commissioner. The next one um, is um, was kind of an off-the-cuff new business item. This is this is where those new business items can show up. Um, one of the commissioners was concerned that we're not going to have in-person um, waterfowl blind drawings, so not a blind drawing, like a no-look drawing, a waterfowl hunting blind drawing at Ballard WMA, uh, which has for years been an in-person draw, which allows folks to stand by. So people get in line as a standby group, and, um, you know, there's 14 down there, and if, if only 10 people who drew the blind show up that day, then four of those people on the standby list get to jump on in and hunt that day. So... That's been going on forever, and you got to meet at the uh, at the uh, uh, Ballard WMA office there to do that. Well, due to COVID, um, it's all going to be online, and that kind of reduces the opportunity because you really won't have that second second chance opportunity as a standby hunter. And there was some concern there, and I think one of your commissioners, um, uh, it was uh, Mr. Knott from the Fourth, I think he um, somewhat eloquent, eloquently reminded the commission and the department that there's while it's risky there could be better ways to do that and if we have any other the way i took it is we have any other instances like this where people can draw something in person that we could do social distancing and wear masks and and show up in person and then we're not eliminating opportunity by doing it all online we're limiting opportunity and while it was it was painful to get the point across i think his point was well taken um the next new business item was to move uh, was to clean up some regulations. So, for those of you who knew Major Estes in the law enforcement uh, division, like I did, I, you know we weren't like best friends, but I'd seen him at meetings for a number of years. And uh, Major Estes is um, just an expert on our um, law enforcement uh, division procedures, but moreover, an expert on our 150 series of law. Kentucky Revised Statute and on the admin regulations that support those statutes. And um, one of the things he was working on before he retired last month was cleaning up all the regulations where it's redundant, where it's really hard to understand some things. And so um, his hard work is still continuing. And so this next new business item that you will see as a discussion item uh, in December is to update the entry rules for the Ballard WMA basically uh, repeal some sections of 301, uh, 4, 
colon 020 and um, consolidate them in 301 2 dash or 2 colon 2222. So just some of that. Another new, new business item to um, update the same type rules in uh, Swan Lake Unit of Boatwright, uh, make them uh, more simple and less red tape. Uh, that was the end of the uh, new business items. The next item, um, um, I'm sorry, that was not the end of the new business items. There's one more new business item, and that was um, to amend the regulation to allow for refinement of Asian carp harvest program to improve efficiency and effectiveness. And basically, as the Asian carp harvest program evolves, uh, they're going to continue to refine uh, allowances and restrictions uh, to keep the program effective and efficient. And this deals mainly with commercial fishers, um, but you may see more on that as an action item in the next in uh, the December meeting. Then there was an update on fish kills from the fisheries division. Um, basically, we've had uh, 20 named fish kills uh, in the last 10 years, uh, but there were 50 incidents total. Um, so 50 incidents that could be fish kills but only 20 of them 20 of them rose to the level of magnitude to be called a fish kill um, most of them were uh, sewage related uh, at least that's how they um, reported it um, and um, the biggest discussion was on the reparations paid for the major fish kill or the largest fish kill we've had in recent history which was on the kentucky river uh, when we had a um, a rick house where they store bourbon caught fire if everybody remembers last year and um and it killed a, about 60 miles worth of the kentucky river and um i'm sad to say but it, it is what it is um the bourbon industry only paid one hundred ninety four thousand dollars uh to recoup 60 miles of river um and all they pay for currently is the fish and um, there is a kind of an actuarial table, if you will, in the back of a fisheries reference book that basically says this is how much a 15-inch bass is worth, this is how much a 20-inch bass is worth, this is how much a 24-inch bass is worth, so on and so forth for every fish species. And right after that fish kill, um, you'll remember our fisheries division was busting their tail, all hands on deck, floating that river, counting dead fish. Because... After they get that dead fish count, they compare it to this table to get it an actual dollar value for each one of those fish. And then that establishes the recoup cost um, and the restitution that should be paid. And it was only $194,000. Here's the interesting thing. There were nine other named fish kills. Those fish kills, only $46,000 for the other nine total Com yeah. combined, combined was paid. And so there was a lot of discussion about why the department's only getting paid that much. And come to find out, uh, they're using a 2003 manual. Mm. So 17 years have passed since the values of those fish have been updated. And so I did a little hasty math. And uh, if you just use the consumer price index or the rate of inflation uh, for the last 17 years, a fish that was worth $10 in 2003 would be worth $15.10. So, um, you know, we're losing about 50% of the value. So, I mean, if the manual is updated, we may have got somewhere closer to 300000 But I will tell you that even that, um, 
is woefully too low to restore 60 miles of river um, and the fish that lived in it. And so there was some significant significant just uh, discussion on how to um, come up with a cost for lost recreation, how to come up with a, a cost for lost tourism revenue. And I think you're going to see some significant work done on that uh, in the department in the future. And ladies and gentlemen, that was the seven and a half hours of the commission meeting that I set in for your benefit. And you're getting that plus what me and Ben did in the last 30 days, hunting and fishing, plus national issues. And you're getting it all in about an hour and 10 minutes. So you're welcome. <laughs> Take I'm a deep breath. I'm exhausted, dude. <laughs> I'm exhausted every time I try to every time I try to turn a, a seven and a half or eight and a half hour meeting into a one hour or forty five minute update. I'm like uh, about to die. <laughs> Excuse me while I have some sprite. Go for it. Oh shit. Um. So that's that's all what's going on at the state level. Um. To quickly recap, uh, the commission and the attorney general are going to court. Uh, Judge Wingate's court in Franklin County. Um. Uh, over Mr. Storm's contract, and they will make their initial arguments on uh, uh, October 7th at 9 a.m. And uh, we've got almost exclusively good news at the national level, and we've got some interesting stuff going on at the state level. Yeah, go watch those pebble tapes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you've you've not watched the the pebble tapes where um, those environmentalists – posed as investors and you, you see the absolute corruption of the mining company executives just bragging on the on the money they're going to make and how they're in the pockets of all these powerful um, politicians it's it's hilarious and disgusting all at the same time yeah yeah and that executive at pebble who was the guy who was in most of the tape has actually had to resign so heads started to roll even in the civilian sector mm-hmm you got any wrap-ups, bro? I don't. I don't. I yeah. kind of glanced over. I think that guy over there caught like two fish the whole time while you're talking. Yeah, you know, you can. That's the great thing about podcasts, man. Your views better than mine. I'm looking up. The, <laughs> I'm looking up the hill. Yeah, you're looking at our truck sitting back there. Yeah, I'm looking up the hill, and you're looking down into the tailwaters where people are fishing. Yeah, he's throwing. A, he's throwing a topwater. Oh, was he? Yeah. Yeah, and it's just started a really weird light drizzle too. Um, There's also a muskrat that went swimming by. Oh, did it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, there's no musky in there, and there are no hungry musky because the muskrats don't last long. There's about a 30-inch musky in there, boy. That's 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 candy. <laughs> who's who's that guy? There's a there's a guy who does all these fancy podcasts, and and uh, he says his oh, it's Steve Rennell, the meat eater. He said his grandfather back, you know, it wasn't. He's not sure it was legal then. They used to uh, bridle chipmunks. Live, oh yeah, live, live yeah. chipmunks <laughs> to musky fish. Yeah. So anyway, folks. Um. That's all she wrote, unless there's a special call meeting uh, between now and um, the December regularly scheduled meeting. Uh, We will not have another podcast because we just do the reporting on what's going on, again, at the national and state level uh, in policy and uh, regulation updates and such. Um, So uh, that you don't have to sit through long meetings and do all the research. You can listen to it in your car on the way to work and then you're fully updated. Once again, um, if you want to take action at the national level, the very best place to take action is at www.backcountryhunters.org, backcountryhunters.org, the Take Action tab. 
Um, you'll be, they have pre-formatted letters for you to send and, and you basically give them your zip code and it also pulls in who your, um, your Senator and your representative, uh, is at the federal level. And, uh, you can take action on those issues that Ben was talking about that are important to you uh, at the state level. Um, if you already know, uh, about all the issues and you're really well informed and you know who your state legislators are in both the house and the Senate, then, then you really don't need any help. If you need some help, uh, one of the best places to go is www.kysci-lac.com. That's the Kentucky Safari Club International Legislative Affairs Committee website. Um, and there's multiple places on there uh, to stay informed and take action. But basically, they have a, a few quick links on, on just about any issue will get you to um, the... Uh, address and or phone number for your legislators if uh, if it's important to you and it'll also get you to um, your commissioner uh, if you want to talk to one of your uh, if you want to talk to your district commissioner and one of the other ways to get to your district commissioner is to go to um, uh, ky.fw. or ky.fw.gov um, which is the uh, Fish and Wildlife website, and then go to the About Us tab, and then go down to the right-hand side where it says Commissioners, and it'll say in parentheses Volunteers, and then it'll help you figure out which county, or you should already know what county you live in, but it'll, it'll tell you which commissioner represents which county because we have nine commissioners in 120 counties. So there's how to get involved. Uh, we certainly hope you do because without your voice, we get whatever politicians want. So your voice certainly matters. Uh, we would like to thank uh, the talented Mr. Grayson Jenkins. Um, he is a good friend of uh, my partner in crime, uh, Ben. Um, and uh, he allows us to use his music uh, at the opening and closing of this show. Uh, one of the easiest ways to uh, get in touch with his music and figure out if you really like it after you just hear the opening and closing music is uh, just check him out on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and type in Grayson, like Grayson County, Kentucky, and Jenkins, like as in Jenkins. Uh, so thank you, Grayson, for letting us uh, use your uh, music. Um, also, uh, my dear friend uh, uh, Walter over at Louisville Toppers is still offering a discount for anybody uh, that listens to the show. Uh, he doesn't sponsor us. He doesn't give us a nickel. Um, he just has said, look, he, he's such a fan of, of the things that I do and, and what we're trying to do that he is willing to give anybody that comes in there and mentions me, Ben, or this podcast, easiest things is just mention this podcast, the State of the Outdoors, uh, he'll give you a discount on, you know, he's got toppers, tono covers, uh, brush guards, uh, running boards, you name it. Uh, he just put a brush guard and a winch on the front of one of my trucks for me. Uh, and I mentioned the podcast, and he gave me a discount, too. So there you <laughs> go. But uh and then uh, if you want to contact us and have a discussion about anything we reported on or you want more information about anything we reported on, um, you can get a hold of me at ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, at theslowhunt.com. All one word, theslowhunt.com. And then, uh, Ben, what's... Uh, Bishop at theslowhunt.com. Yep. And so Ben usually covers down on national issues and I cover down on state. So depending on what your question is, just hit us up. And uh, this show is part of the Slow Hunt LLC network. And remember, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Until next time, thanks. One, two.